Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hey, welcome everybody uh, on this rainy Thursday. Um, today's seminar is um, Renee Jeffrey, Bikram Tilmasina, uh, talking about redemocratizing Nepal. I don't think either of these two probably need much introduction to the people around the table. Um, I will point out, though, that um, Renee's got a new book out. In fact, it's out today. Um, on, so it's on, hard copies yet. No copies. Blame COVID. It's been shipped from the UK. Yeah, so that's on negotiating peace, amnesties, justice and human rights. Oh, and that's come out with Cambridge. And so it's out today. Uh, and Bikram's moving towards the conclusion of his PhD soon. And I think the two of you also have got an article just about hopefully going to come out or at some point or another um, later on, maybe this year or early next year. So that's great too. So over to you, uh, you two. So about 40 minutes or so. That clock's wrong up there. Um, I'll give you a prompting when we're heading towards 10.40. Um, but yes, so the normal 40 minutes or so, and then we've got questions and comments after that. Great. Thank you. So yes, um, this comes out of um, an ARC discovery on uh, accountability for human rights violations in South Asia that I've actually been working on with Ian for the last few years and I've been doing all the Nepal work. But then I brought um, Bikram on board um, to do the research work and we've ended up um, writing some pieces together. And this paper today comes from an article that we're just doing the last revisions on and hopefully... Um, Contemporary politics will finally accept it um, soon, in the next few weeks, and then it will come out. Um, so it's been really, really good to work with somebody who is just so familiar with all the ins and outs um, of the politics um, and to really bring that extra perspective to my sort of outsider view um, of what's going on in Nepal. So a bit of the context of this paper... Um, Nepal's currently in the midst of what some people are calling a process of re-democratisation. Um, this is its third attempt um, at democratising. Uh, the first took place in the 1950s uh, when the Nepali Congress, with the support of King Tribhuvan, overthrew the Rana dynasty, which had ruled the people of Nepal with you know, real sort of authoritarian brutality for about 100 years. This transition didn't last very long, however. In 1959, the first democratic elections were held um, and BP Kurala was elected the first democratically elected Prime Minister. But within a year, um, King Mahendra, who'd taken over by then, um, overthrew the democratically elected government. Um, and by 1962, he instituted um, the Panchayat system of government, which really... Um, you know, he posed it as a form of guided democracy, but actually it was a way of giving him direct and unchallenged rule. The second transition came in 1990, when thousands of people took to the streets as part of Jana Andalan, or the People's Movement. And the result of that protest movement um, was the introduction of multi-party parliamentary democracy and a new constitution. Although that constitution was definitely an improvement um, on the previous one, it was widely criticised um, for a range of things, including that it concentrated too much power in the executive um, and that it discriminated against marginalised socio-cultural groups. Um, among those who were unhappy with Nepal's democratic process uh, was the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist, uh, which formed in 1996. Now, 
The extent to which they are truly committed to democracy is another argument for another day, but much of what they talked about at the time was posed in terms of a failure to progress the democratic process. So in 1996, the CPNM um, launched its People's War, which lasted for 10 years. Um, and it was fought over a variety of political, economic um, and social grievances. Um, it was a time of really significant political tumult as well. Um, in 2001, King Berendra was assassinated in the you know, palace assassinations that we, we all heard about at the time. Um, and in 2002 and 2006, um, King Gyanendra launched a series of coups um, where he overthrew the government. The result of that was really interesting because it actually brought the formerly antagonistic parties um, from the civil conflict together against him. So it actually provided a pathway towards the, um, you know, the finalisation of a peace process. And that was very, very strongly helped. Um, by the Second People's Movement in 2006, where people protested on the streets for 19 days and in the end of it managed to force the king to relinquish his power and restore government. So since then, Nepal's been undergoing what people are calling its third attempt at re-democratisation. This has been its most durable attempt at democracy so far, uh, in 2015, it ratified a new democratic constitution which provided for multi-party competitive federal republican parliamentary system based on plurality. Um, obviously, the constitution has a huge amount in it, but what we're interested in is the judiciary. It confirmed the final power of the Supreme Court to interpret the constitution and law, and it established formally the separation of powers. And what's gone with that are some really significant improvements in key democratic indicators. Now, we know that democratic indicators have all sorts of problems with them, yet all of them, VDEM, Freedom, um, Freedom House, they all show improvements in Nepal's democracy between 2005 and now. So sometimes the year-on-year -year gains have been very, very small, but certainly in the Freedom House assessments, Nepal's gone from being not free to partly free. And those, yeah, as I said, those scores are going up sort of incrementally. Um, so this is the 2020 I've got there, to, um, where it's got 56 out of 100. The previous year it was on 54 out of 100. So heading in the right sort of direction slowly. Except for the fact that in recent years, a growing number of people have become very concerned about the quality of democracy um, in Nepal. There are concerns over the emergence of what some people are calling elected autocracy, uh, democratic decline and creeping authoritarianism in Nepal. Um, there's a lot of anxiety over endemic corruption, threats to civil liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of the media, and there are perennial concerns that have been raised since 2006 about the fact that there have been very few improvements in respect for the rule of law or in the independence, authority and power of the judiciary. Um, so there are a number of really troubling developments in the last few years that Bikram's going to talk about in a minute um, that have given rise to concerns that Nepal might be in the early stages of democratic backsliding. So in this paper, we're going to examine the judicial independence of power of Nepal's Supreme Court during the re-democratisation process. And we focus in particular on the role it's played in disputes over transitional justice. 
Now, transitional justice um, refers to the full range of processes and mechanisms associated with a society's attempt to come to terms with a legacy of large-scale abuses in order to ensure accountability, serve justice and reconciliation. Now, in contexts in which a democratic transition is accompanied by transitional justice, shifts in the relationship between law and politics, uh, how that, that relationship is conceived, can generate really significant tensions over which branch of government has the authority and power to address human rights issues. So in the immediate aftermath of a conflict, human rights violations are often perceived as a political issue to be dealt with by the executive. But as a process of democratisation takes place and we have the establishment of the separation of powers and judicial independence, at least on paper, there comes an expectation that matters of justice will be dealt with by the judiciary and that the, that the judiciary um, will scrutinise and challenge political decisions that are made about human rights. So we argue um, in our paper that transitional justice provides a really significant pressure test for the democratising state's commitment to judicial independence. It really brings those issues of just how far the executive in particular is willing to allow the judiciary to be independent into very, very sharp focus. Um, and we argue that that is very amply demonstrated in the case of Nepal. So in what follows, I'm going to talk very briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on theory and things like that, but I'm going to quickly talk about the place of judicial independence um, in the recent work on backsliding. And then I'm going to introduce our judicial independence framework before handing over to Bikram, who's going to provide an assessment of the extent to which Nepal's Supreme Court um, has been able to exercise independence on transitional justice issues. So judicial independence, an empowered and independent judiciary is widely accepted as one of the cornerstones of modern consolidated democracy. Independent judiciaries provide checks on executive power, um, they contribute to horizontal accountability between state institutions, um, they uphold and strengthen the rule of law, they protect constitutional rights and guarantees and so on. I really don't need to rehearse all the reasons why we accept that independent judiciaries are really important for democracy. Many, um, so Tita, for example, <coughs> refers to them as the linchpin of democratic societies. Um, and for this reason they featured very, very heavily in the literature on the third wave of democratic transitions. Now, for similar reasons, um, judicial independence keeps cropping up in more recent efforts um, to account for this apparent decline in democratic quali quality that marks contemporary world politics. Um, it's now really well accepted that many of the third wave democracies are failing to consolidate and that even well-established, stable democracies are at risk of democratic decline. So this phenomenon has really served to undermine that assumption that democracy is a linear process um, that starts from authoritarian rule to a fledgling democracy and then on to a consolidated democracy. Rather, many states seem to move back and forth between something that looks a bit like authoritarianism and something that looks a bit like a democracy. Others are forming hybrid regimes in which authoritarian institutions and democratic institutions sit together, um, while others um, seem to be in this process of backsliding. It's not that democracy has necessarily collapsed in all of these states. It's more that it's taking on new forms that weren't anticipated when 
you know, when people started theorising the process of, of democratisation in the 70s and 80s. So in much of the literature, this has been talked about as democratic backsliding. Um, so backsliding is defined by Nancy Bermeo as the state-led debilitation or, or elimination of the political institution sustaining an existing democracy. So in contrast to acute crises where you have a sudden and sharp regime change, that debilitation takes place incrementally. And among the most common um, debilitating measures are those that seek to limit the power and independence of the judiciary. Most of this work mentions um, the judiciary, but it treats judicial independence as a whole or, or focuses on those most overt tactics that are used to undermine the judiciary. So things like blackmailing um, uh, judges, impeaching judges, packing courts with party loyalists. And we argue that these things are really important and really significant. But we argue that if we think about judicial independence in more holistic terms, then a whole lot of other less obvious, more insidious um, ways in which judiciaries can be undermined all sort of start to come to light. Um, these might also help to identify um, the very early, less obvious ways in which democracies um, can be undermined. So in broad terms, then judicial independence is, um, we take SCAR's um, definition as the freedom from undue executive interference. It's a very, very broad definition and it kind of has to be because there is actually very little agreement on exactly what judicial independence is beyond this um, or how it can be um, ensured. Rather, we have a number of very, very different approaches in the literature that focus either on courts as institutions on the behaviour of judges and members of the political branches or on the strategic interactions between the judiciary, legislature and executive. Most work on this focuses on one or the other um, of these. Um, we argue that all three of them deserve attention and when Bikram talks about Nepal, you'll see why um, the way in which independence is, is, is um, exercised in each of these is really different. Um, and in some cases, a state can have great institutional independence, but its behavioural independence can be lacking and so on. So very, very quickly what these are. Um, institutional independence um, emphasises the importance of structural measures to ensure that judges and judiciaries have the freedom to reach decisions without being subject to unwarranted political interference. So within constitutional democracies, the most fundamental structure um, is the separation of powers. But there are also a whole lot of other measures that are um, included in constitutions, things like uh, length of tenure, financial guarantees to ensure that judiciaries are not put under financial pressure for making the decisions that they do, impeachment procedures and so on. But some people argue that they can often be little more than sort of, you know, parchment barriers if you have an aggressive executive um, or legislature. Um, others note that despite all manner of structural protections in place, um, judges are human, politicians are human, and they all remain susceptible um, to, you know, threats and temptations that might come their way. So that's um, Ferrajon. So in response, they focus instead on behavioural conditions that are associated with um, independent uh, decision-making. Now, behavioural independence has two sides to it. On one side, we have the willingness of the legislature and executive to refrain from influencing or impinging upon judicial independence. 
And on the other side, um, we have the willingness of the judiciary to rule against the government. Um, without both of those things, we can't really say that the actors involved in the judicial process are you know, upholding independence. Third is strategic um, independence. Um, strategic independence is the product of these strategic interactions between the three branches of government, and it conceives judges um, as rational decision makers. So this very much focuses on what judges are doing within the judicial system. Um, it focuses on the use of judicial processes to achieve proactive strategic um, ends, so including... Um, influencing the development of law and policy in particular issue areas. Um, so a good example of this is the strategic exercise um, is it, sorry, is seen in the efforts of courts to ensure that sufficiently robust laws are promulgated to allow the effective prosecution of human rights crimes in the future. So it's about using judgments in the present to be able to um, you know, achieve strategic ends later on. But there's one other concept here um, that's really important and that's judicial power. Um, judicial power is comprised of autonomy or independence and effectiveness. The greater the level of autonomy and effectiveness that a court possesses, the more power um, a judiciary is said um, to have. So judicial effectiveness in this um, context is conceived as the extent to which courts can actually compel the state to um, comply with adverse decisions. So it's not just that they're able to make adverse rulings, but they can then get the government to comply with those rulings. So it acknowledges that although a judiciary might possess institutional foundations for judicial independence and exercise that independence in its decision-making behaviour, the ability of the judiciary to act as a check on executive power, contribute to horizontal accountability, uphold the rule of law and so on, rests both on the willingness of the political branches to be guided and constrained by the judiciary and the ability of the judiciary to instruct and compel the legislature and the executive to actually follow its orders. Um, the last thing I'll say about that is that this is not a fixed phenomenon. It waxes and wanes. So judicial independence waxes and wanes and so does judicial power. And it waxes and wanes in response to variations in political contexts, issue areas across different periods of time. So we can't say that this is fixed. We have to look at the particular political actors in a particular um, issue area at a particular time. And that's exactly what Bikram's going to do. Thank you. Cross. <laughs> Thank you, Rene. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, as uh, Rene said, Nepal's uh, democratization, uh, the process of democratization has been characterized by some sort of rivalry between the monarchy and the political, democratic political parties. Uh, in different uh, points of time, there have been some sort of a struggle between those two forces. And one of the uh, demands of the, um, the Maoist struggle, the civil conflict between 1996 and 2006, was that uh, Nepal's uh, constitution should be uh, written through constituent assembly, it would mean that the people's representatives are responsible, I mean, they, they understand the true spirits of the people, 
Previously, the constitutions were re written by the experts in the field, but uh, they wanted the political forces uh, made a kind of consensus that the constitution should be written by people's representatives, so they went for CA. So uh, the constituent assembly election, the first one, um, happened in 2008, uh, and there were a lot of discussion about uh, how, what kind of constitution they wanted. Uh, it, it went for years, and it dissolved without uh, concluding on the constitution. And second CA was elected once again and it took like, I mean, there, there was discussions for five, six years about different democratic norms and values including the uh, provisions about the judiciary and so on. So um, basically being focused on 2015 constitution and engagements of the political forces according to those provisions, how uh, judicial independence has been practiced in Nepal, this is what I'm going to focus. Uh, age, uh, Rene put, uh, discussed about those theoretical aspects about how judicial independence can be uh, analyzed. I, I focus on those four points and relate that to the democrat democratization process, process of Nepal, basically in relation to the transitional justice issues. So to start with, the institutional independence, um, as has already been said, uh, the constitution uh, of uh, Nepal 2000 2015 has given the final power to interpret the Constitution and law to the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, it, it was given by the Constitution, but uh, it, it did not happen as it is because there were a lot of discussions about whether uh, Supreme Court should be given a kind of like that that right to interpret the Constitution or not. There were different options that they talked about. For example, constitutional court being responsible for uh, interpreting the law, or whether there should be a standing committee of the Parliament uh, to. To, to supervise judiciary and interpret law and constitution or not. And they also, like, I mean, some political forces, they were in support of the Supreme Court being responsible for that job. So finally, uh, they agreed on the Supreme Court, like they gave the right to the Supreme Court to interpret law and constitution, uh, which is uh, um, a strong point about, like, I mean, the Supreme Court was able to um, uh, perform institutional independence to a great extent being based on that particular uh, provision. However, uh, even uh, according to the Constitution of 2015, uh, there were some problems which could make the Supreme Court, uh, I mean, th there were some regressive steps taken to make the Supreme Court uh, weak in its uh, uh, exercise of institutional uh, independence. For example, the way the Supreme Court, uh, the, the judges and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, was appointed. The, 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 the problem, the, the provision in the Constitution had, has been taken as some sort of problem because it has promoted, according to the experts, it has promoted the uh, politicization of the appointments, which is a problem. If you compare the constitu constitutional provision of the uh, appointment of the Supreme Court judges uh, and Chief Justice with 1990 co Constitution, um, the 2015 Constitution has been taken as regressive because um, before 1990, uh, there used to be a direct rule of the king, and during that time, the king was responsible for appointing the judges of a choice. But after that, in 1990 Constitution, there was the provision of Constitutional Council and Judicial Council. 
council which would be responsible for appointing the judges and chief justice. In a constitutional council, according to 1990 constitution, there would be a prime minister as the chairperson of the council and chief justice, the speaker, chairperson of national assembly and leader of the opposition would be there as the member of the constitutional council. Um, because constitutional council would be responsible for making appointments in numerous uh, constitutional bodies including judiciary. But when they were uh, to appoint the chief justice, there was additional provision of uh, one, uh, including the minister of justice and a judge of the Supreme Court in the Constitutional Council, which made it stronger. Like, I mean, uh, more than political actors, there were also like two um, members from the uh, sector of judiciary. One was Supreme Court uh, just chief justice, and another was the uh, uh, judge of the Supreme Court. Uh, but later, they excluded uh, the judge. Uh, of the Supreme Court being the member of the Constitutional Council in 2007 and 2015. Uh, in 2007, they added three ministers, uh, ministers from the Ministry of Council, which helped it being politicized. And again, in 2015, they added the deputy leader of the uh, parliament, the deputy speaker of the parliament. Uh, so it was also like, I mean, there was a majority of the politicians or the people appointed by the politicians instead of um, the people representing the judiciary. So it made it like, I mean, uh, susceptible to the politicization while it was about political uh, appointments of the Supreme Court judges and chief justices. There has been different attempts from the executives to undermine the uh, institutional independence uh, of the Supreme Court in practice. For example, very recently in 2020 and 2021, a couple of months ago, uh, the government uh, pushed forward an ordinance on Constitutional Council uh, because uh, the, the government said that it could not uh, appoint uh, members and different uh, office holders in different constitutional bodies, so it uh, wanted to amend the Constitutional Council Act. According to the provision of the Constitutional Council Act 2010, there had to be mm, at least five members of the Constitutional Council uh, being in the meeting to make a decision, and there had to be a unanimous decision of uh, those people taking part in the meeting for appointing any, uh, any, any for making any appointments, in, including the appointment of Chief Justice. But according to the ordinance, uh, there could be as less as three members. Uh, so even without the Supreme Court jo uh, jo uh, Chief Justice, or even without the Speaker of the Parliament, or even without the um, leader of the opposition, there could be the meeting of the uh, Constitutional Council and they could make a recommendation about the appointments. As Rene said, like it uh, violated the idea of notion of the separations of power and the government could appoint any people they liked by being politicized. Uh, and, and there are other problems related to tenure, pay and conditions uh, and the dismissal of the Chief Justices in the Constitution as well because uh, the judicial independence could be protected by the life tenure, uh, but in Nepal uh, there is the provision of six e years of tenure for the chief justice and judges, and um, even if it is not six years, if they reach their age of 65, they had to be, I mean, their term would be uh, completed, so they could not... Mm,
uh, and they, they no longer would be able to uh, solve. So, and there are all the provisions about the renumeration of the judges and the funding of the judiciary. It, 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 it totally like there is no uh, constitutional provision provision about the certain amount or something like that. So they had to depend on the parliament about that. So there would be some infringement in the like separation of powers. They were susceptible to political influence because of that reason as well. And most most important of all, like I mean, limiting the uh, judicial uh, institutional independence of the uh, Chief Justice and the judges of the Supreme Court, there is a provision of impeachment motion in the Constitution, uh, which is really problematic because according to, to the constitutional provision, one qu quarter of the members of the total members of the Parliament, uh, they could push forward the motion of impeachment in the uh, Parliament, and when the motion of the impeachment was um, uh, registered, uh, the Chief Justice could no longer be able to work. Um, so the position would be uh, uh, would be suspended so um, because of that provision um, they like chief justices um, had to be aware about what political actions they can take on the basis of the formation the kind of equation in the polit like parliament or something like that even if a political party was um, did not like uh, what the chief justice uh, was doing they could they if they had uh, one fourth of the um, in the in the um, capacity in the Parliament, they could uh, file the impeachment motion, and they could stop the chief justice from doing what they were doing. So that that that. A theoretical provision came into reality when there was impeachment of Chief Justice Cecilia Karki in 2017 because uh, the Chief Justice were, were making many landmark decisions about transitional justice and corruption cases. Uh, the political actors were not happy about it because the, the, the Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist, which were part of the conflict uh, during the Civil War, they wanted the transitional justice cases to be I mean, decided on their favor, and there were other political actors who did not like the anti-corruption kind of politics to happen. So because of that, they went against um, Chief Justice Susila Karki. They registered the motion of impeachment, and later uh, they did not uh, vote uh, in the parliament, but what they did was they suspended the position of the Chief Justice, and the day before, uh, her, um, uh, the day before she retired, they took the that impeachment motion back, but what they were able to do was prevent her from doing her job from the position. So these kind of provisions have infringed, like made the Supreme Court weaker in practice. Then after institutional independence, behavioral independence, there are a number of rulings that the Supreme Court of Nepal has made against the government, uh, which, uh, which shows that uh, the Supreme Court has been able to exercise its behavioral independence. For example, in 2014 and 2015, there were two special benches that um, gave verdicts on the issues of transitional justice. For example, in 2014, the Supreme Court special bench ruled against the um, ordinance on the investigation of 
of Disappeared Persons Truth and Reconciliation Commission, actually, uh, because it said that the ordinance violated the constitutional and obligation, constitution, constitutional provisions about it and the obligations under international law. Uh, so uh, the, the very the Borlik is very clear about what transitional justice should look like and uh, what kind of cases um, uh, should be can be pardoned and which kind would, which kind of cases must be like executed, uh, prosecuted. Um, so um, a, a Supreme Court uh, also called for the establishment in a different verdict. It also called for the establishment of two separate commissions uh, because previously the act, as you say, ordinance and the investigation of disappeared person truth and reconciliation com commission had the idea of having one commission uh, for investigating the issues of enforced disappearance uh, and uh, truth and reconciliation, but uh, the, the court ordered that they had to be two separate commissions to investigate those two issues. In 2015, Supreme Court Special Bench uh, also said once again, repeated that no amnesty can be given in the serious crimes and there could not be any imposition of reconciliation victims. They had to, they had to have the um, consent uh, from the victims if then there could be any uh, reconciliation. Two uh, cases, like I mean, uh, Speaker Agni Prasad Sapkota and Legislator Balkrishna Dungil's cases are really very important to understand the practice of behavioral independence of the Supreme Court in Nepal. Uh, Agni Prasad Sapkota is the current Speaker of the Parliament. Uh, he, in, from 2010, there is one uh, uh, case in Supreme Court of Nepal against him. It is in the special bench, which has not been decided yet. He has been um, accused of murder and can uh, protect. Um, he has been uh, accused of murder, uh, and um, but uh, he was appointed speaker in 2020, like a year ago. He he, he was appointed the speaker of the parliament. Uh, there was case against him in the Supreme Court that has not been decided, but the Supreme Court denied to issue any interim uh, order against his appointment. And another is Legislator Balakrishna Dungail. Uh, he, he he is Maoist, so he took part in the civil war. Um, so he is also like, he is convicted of murder actually. And several times the Supreme Court had to give directives to the government to arrest. It, it didn't, the, the government did not do. The government, like he would appear uh, alongside many powerful political leaders in public uh, spaces, but the police would say that he was in the run and they were not being able to find him, which is really ridiculous. And later, when the Supreme Court issued an order um, an order that uh, there could be contempt of the Supreme Court if he was not arrested against the chief of the Nepal police. Um, the police was compelled to arrest him and they did that uh, in that case. So, um, yeah, after the behavior independence, uh, Briefly about the strategic independence that the Supreme Court has been uh, ex has exercised in Nepal. Um, in case of uh, transitional justice specifically, there are several uh, really very important verdicts that have been made uh, to define uh, and uh, like I mean to define the notion of the transitional justice in Nepal. Um, so in 2007, there was a verdict on a case, for example, uh, in which the Supreme Court say that enforced disappearances uh, are prohibited under international laws. Nepal is party to, so Nepal had to be uh, clear about that. 
state also ordered the government to pass the legislation to criminalize enforced disappearances, which Nepal did in 2017, but it, it, it is said that um, the criminalization of the enforced disappearance has not been according to the international standard and according to the international laws. So, and the Supreme Court also directed the government to include enforced disappearance in legislation as per the definition of the international convention of the protection of all persons from enforced disappearance. So, as I said, it has not been. Though Nepal was not party to CED, the, the Supreme Court um, directed the government to do that, which the uh, government did not do later, but um, Supreme Court played a role uh, in uh, like making that strategic uh, decision very clearly. And not once the Supreme Court has, been, has uh, directed the government to do that in successive cases. Um, so, uh, while making a verdict on the transitional justice uh, uh, cases, uh, the Supreme Court said that uh, transitional justice is a process of mechanism closely related to society. It says that it consists of two uh, dimensions. Two things are there, punishing the perpetrators of serious crimes and creating an environment of reconciliation. There, there should not be any escape to the perpetrators of serious crimes and reconciliation uh, on unintended and less serious crimes. So um, clear, clearly, these kind of provisions have been uh, ordered by the Supreme Court. Uh, it also said at times that critical uh, criminal justice system has supremacy and cannot be replaced by transitional justice because the political actors had tendency of um, um, recommending the criminal cases to the transitional uh, TRC, uh, TRC commission. So um, instead of investigating that under uh, criminal justice system, but the court has directed the government not to do that. Serious human rights violations cannot be a subject of amnesty, the Supreme Court has at times uh, clearly like, uh, said. Finally, uh, judicial empowerment. Uh, <laughs> judicial empowerment. Uh, so, to some extent, uh, Supreme Court of Nepal has been able to exercise its judicial uh, empowerment because it has made um, several landmark verdicts um, against the government. For example, even during the direct rule of the king, Supreme Court um, has a record of um, doing verdicts uh, against the king's decision. Um, and uh, there, there is um, even like specifically about uh, transitional justice policies, uh, there is clear willingness to rule against the government and influence the TJ has already been discussed before, um, but the government has problem of not being able to comply with uh, Supreme Court rulings. Uh, um, then, uh, like there is, we already talked about uh, Speaker Agni Prasad Sapkota and Balkrishna Dungel cases, and there is very low execution rate of the uh, directives of the Supreme Court. Um, for example, there is only six out of 21 verdicts made on transitional justice by Supreme Court that are fully executed, uh, and the main reason behind uh, the low rate of execution uh, of the Supreme Court verdicts is the pressure and the influence from the political actors in the there. Thank you. And Rene will conclude the presentation. Um, so I'm just going to skip through most of that and just quickly do a quick, quick wrap up to say although we've had some you know, positive developments in terms of sort of overall um, democracy um, in Nepal, we haven't had a similar set of improvements um, in the rule of law. And that's also showing up in the um, democratic indicators from you know, um, organisations like Freedom House and so on. Um, so although the Supreme Court has 
exercised significant behavioural independence. It's reached a lot of verdicts that are not in the interests of very powerful political actors, and it has done so doggedly over and over and over again. Um, this has not been reciprocated by the executive, which has just undermined judicial independence by refusing to follow um, court directives, particularly on matters of human rights. We could probably tell the same story about matters of corruption. Um, now, that's not to say, um, importantly, um, that members of the judiciary, including the Supreme Court, have always acted with integrity themselves. There are allegations of corruption, particularly in the form of bribes um, for favourable rulings or lenient sentences, and those allegations are pretty rife when you talk to people um, in Nepal. But what I think we've tried to do here is highlight that there's a fault line in the acceptance of the um, separation of powers, um, judicial independence and, and judicial empowerment, that the issue of human rights really reveals a key challenge for Nepal's ongoing process of democratisation. Um, and while these core principles um, of institutional independence are typically enshrined in democratic constitutions during transitions, the effective exercise um, of judicial independence goes beyond institutional rules to rest on behavioural independence, um, both of the judiciary and the political branches, and those sorts of strategic interactions that Bikram's been talking about. Um, without political will... Um, judiciaries struggle to translate those institutional um, aspects and even their behavioural aspects of independence into power and to actually curb the power of the executive. And in Nepal, with growing concerns over democratic backsliding, addressing this tension in the separation of powers, strengthening judicial independence and accepting um, judicial power is vital if this latest re-democratisation process is to avoid best the entrenchment of a hybrid regime where you have these you know, combined aspects of authoritarianism and democracy and at worst ending in exactly the same way as the previous two attempts have gone. Thanks. Okay, thanks to you both and thanks also to, uh, for keeping the time and so on. Um, it's very difficult, I know, in these kinds of contexts to, to do that. Um, but we can bring out some of the detail, I think, in questions and comments and so on. So, uh, who would like to start with Pat? So we're going to move around the table. The first thing to think about the call is that the people who wrote the constitutions are still there. Mm. So, the question really is, in a sense, about the, the ownership of the constitution, the belief in who is actually the person best suited to understand what we really meant. I mean, for the American Constitution, now you have the literalist who look back and say, what did the founding fathers say? Now you can ask them. I understand the first one. I mean, the 1959 Constitution was written by Ivor Jennings. So here you have a sort of British bang put on the top and say, we're running like that. Mm. The 1990 Constitution was the much more participatory and Excuse an anecdote. I talked to a bloke called Ranharri Sharma, who was one of the five who were involved in 1940-41 against the Rana's. And three of them got murdered, and two of them were because they were Brahmin. And he, he told a story about um, well, one of them became Prime Minister, Tankov Basad, and, and Ranharri Sharma was, was a, a kid at Kathmandu High School. And they, they were taught a course in British history. 
and they had a lesson about how Gladstone had to answer, he told this story, how Gladstone had to answer to the House of Commons. He said, we'd like some of that here, which <laughs> um, they didn't have any of it. But he, when he was writing, involved in writing the 1991 constitution, he said the whole thing, a lot of it was based on a comma. Um, was it a Hindu comma constitutional monarchy, or yeah. was it a Hindu constitutional monarchy? Yeah. Um, so he had his own interpretations yeah. of what the constitution meant, and therefore how it should be interpreted. You've now got an even more democratically involved uh, writers of the constitution, and I haven't been there since 2006, I'm out of date, but I suspect many of them are actually still politicians who are involved in it and saying, when we wrote the Constitution, we didn't mean that, we meant that. <laughs> yeah. And the court is saying this, and the court is actually wrong. So how does that tension <laughs> saying, not that this is a breach of judicial independence, but we never intended them to be able to make judgments on those things when we wrote the Constitution. We meant something completely different, underpinning many of the battles which are going on currently between the government and the judiciary. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, all all of those sorts of documents, and certainly the people that I talk to that have been involved in, for example, the peace agreement, whatever, they've all got very, very different interpretations yeah. of, of, of what was um, what was meant. And I suppose we could go and ask about about the Constitution and, and, and what was meant by it. I guess that could partly explain why it is that what the court seems to be doing seems to be so outside what is politically accepted. But then there's also that other angle to it, that there are, there are standard expectations in writing post-conflict constitutions, and some of them are about upholding particular norms um, around you know, the role of courts and also the role of you know, human rights um, provisions like and so on. Norms held by who? But so say, norms held by the international community that create expectations in these processes. And this certainly was not a process that was done sort of in isolation from an immense amount of international pressure. Um, so certainly another angle to it um, would be to say that was this a constitution that was written to appease those expectations, um, to seem like a democratic constitution that had a formal separation of powers and that does, you know, claim to uphold particular uh, human rights provisions in order to you know, be acceptable to the international community when that's not what the actors actually wanted. We certainly know that that's the case for the peace agreement that led to this. Um, there's plenty of evidence about that. Um, I've written a lot about that. So that, that's a, it's a possible argument um, for this. But to know whether that's the case, we'd have to go and talk to some more people, I think. You know, that sort of takes us in, a, in another new direction, which would be great. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. There are, like, a lot of opinions about how Constitution was made in there. Uh, it is not, like, fully accepted by all of them. People make comments about that very uh, comprehensively. Different kind of opinions are there, as Rene said. So uh, there are some provisions in the Constitutions which I guess many of the people would not like. For example, even the monarchy, about decision about the monarchy, the decision about the federal system, decision about whether Nepal should be a Hindu state 
or not. There were thousands of suggestions sought from the people uh, and finally they collected all the suggestions of the people which they disregarded, it has been said. Without even reading the suggestions provided by the people, they decided about the constitution. And there are people who believe that the constitution has been imposed by the foreign powers. So there are varieties of things, you know. Um, and, and basically it is actually... If you ask me, it is it is a document of the political agreement. There were Maoists which had to be uh, put into the mainstream. There were democratic uh, parties which had been in like practicing democracy for long, and there was another power that that came from the conflict. So they had to go together. So there was a uh, there were like very long discussions. Originally, it was supposed to, the the constitution making process was supposed to be completed like within two years or less. But it took like eight years or so. Uh, I mean, the peace process lasted for almost a decade there. So, and, and even like because of the disagreements in the key provisions in the, in the constitution, the first constitution could not keep the constitution. And after uh, extending ten years for four times, it dissolved, and another constitution assembly had to be elected. So, yeah, there are many problems actually, and. It is not even like, I mean, I would not say that the constitution written by the uh, constitutional assembly would be, I mean, would guarantee judicial independence and other constitutional rights uh, and than the one written by uh, exports. It would be possible, but it can be impossible as well, because the political actors always have their own agenda. And, uh, and it is a kind of agreement among them instead of like what really people say in the ground. Yes. Okay. So uh, I'm just so I'm just trying to think about what the, what parallel would be in India and so on. But there you've got a situation in which the framers of the constitution governed them for for a decade and a half, really, until Nehru's death in 64, 64. And because you've got that, you embed you're able to embed the constitution, if you like, and build consensus around it and so on. I guess the problem is here, you've got no political consensus underlying it, so um, it's going to be a site of contestation, I suppose. But all constitutions are, to a large extent, yes. a, a compromise between political, political actors. Yes. Yep. Um, but the further you get away from them, yes. the people start thinking they're sacred. Yeah, no, so. and I guess that's the that's the that you could argue that that was what happened in India to a degree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for at least you know, for a while at least. <laughs> hmm. I mean, look, we know that we know that this was hugely contentious. The writing of this constitution took way longer than it was supposed to, um, and was stalled. And of course, because you know we had. Um, you know, elections and, you know, an awful lot of political turnover during the process, disagreement about how um, the constitution would even be written before it came to having the negotiations about what would actually be in it um, and so on. So we know that we know that it was highly, highly politicised and, and a very, very difficult, contentious um, issue. And, of, of course, then sort of underlying it was, you know, trying to find a way to avoid the problems of the previous constitution that were used as, as grievances in the civil conflict, 
But, of course, many, many people agreed with those. And so, you know, there were all of those sorts of other compromises in there. This isn't, this isn't constitution-making in, in, in an ordinary sort of context. This is constitution-making after 10 years of civil war um, and about trying to work out, you know, how to, how to deal with that. And I think, you know, if you, Joanne Wallace's work on constitution-making after conflict um, kind of speaks about... You know, that the, the pressures and the ways in which those constitutions are framed um, you know, can often be quite different to, to another context. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Really fabulous um, discussion. Thanks to both of you. Can I just ask, and this is not a case I'm all that familiar with, in terms of this disconnect between the political will um, and the role of the judiciary in judicial independence and the kind of undermining that is happening, um, from the political uh, space, how, to what degree is that translating into public confidence in institutions in the So I would say it's a bit difficult question um, because I think you could answer from both perspectives. Um, let me give you an example of what um, the Prime Minister chose to do uh, in December last year. He dissolved the parliament, and there was uh, the 2015 constitution had clear um, uh, provisions about dissolving parliament because uh, people had said previously that previous uh, constitutions uh, had the provision of uh, giving the absolute right to the prime minister about dissolving the par parliament according to Westminster system, but they, they thought that it introduced a kind of political instability in Nepal, therefore they had to have clear provisions about it. So uh, they, like, I mean, the, the prime minister in a sense could not dissolve the parliament unless there was possibility of any form of government uh, from the parliament. But without trying anything, the Prime Minister chose to dissolve the Parliament and the case was there in the uh, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, um, um, and, and when the, uh, the court heard the, uh, heard the case, it took about two to three months uh, to decide on the case. There were a lot of rumors around about what Supreme Court will do. Many people thought that there, there has already been sitting in the Supreme Court. The, the Prime Minister did already have sitting in the Supreme Court because I talked about the ordinance on uh, Constitutional Council before. Um, when the Prime Minister introduced ordinance on the Constitutional Council Act, uh, he had the support of the Chief Justice. So when the ordinance was passed, uh, when the ordinance was sent to the President, it was passed within an hour. So the President had support uh, to the Prime Minister. Just after it was passed, there was meeting of the Constitutional Council according to the ordinance. On, uh, ordinance. So there could be as less as three members instead of five. So they could decide about that without the participation of opposition leader and the Speaker as well. But in that controversial kind of meeting, the Chief Justice took part. And it was also said that um, the Prime Minister had understanding with the Chief Justice about different appointments in different constitutional bodies, so he had his, his quota, Chief Justice had his quota, and people thought that even though there was no clear provision of uh, dissolving the parliament um, as the right of the Prime Minister, the um, Supreme Court might decide on um, uh, 
prime minister's side. But later, there were a lot of discussions inside and outside about that, and prime, uh, Supreme Court did not do that. Uh, decided against, uh, you know, the uh, decided against the prime minister's decision of dissolving the parliament. And it was said, I mean, before that, th there was a lot of discussion about the sitting in the Supreme Court. But later, people say that, oh yeah, there is some dependent independence uh, on the part of Supreme Court. But later, there was another case about the unification of two political parties, including the political party of the Prime Minister, right? So when the court decided on that case, um, what the court, court did was, like it decided against the unification, which was not the demand of the petitioner. The, the petitioner, petitioner had uh, demanded that uh, the, the name of the unified communist party was actually the name of another political party, therefore the person wanted that the name of the political party to be his, not the new like ruling party, right? But the court went one step further and said that the unification was wrong and they had to go to the, I mean, that it is said that the prime minister got benefited because of that and people started to think like the chief justice could not support the prime minister's decision about the dissolution of the parliament because there was clear provision in the constitution, but you know, somehow um, he got the compensation through the second case. So there are a lot of discussions about that. But to, I think to a great degree, there are many, many decisions which have been made by the Supreme Court uh, which uh, or, or, or not uh, in the interest of the government. But it's like the UK. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but, just sorry to jump in, but on the issue of, the, of Ollie's uh, dis, uh, dissolution of Parliament, they ruled against him, but he hasn't gone back, he hasn't reconvened Parliament. So he hasn't complied with the order, right? Uh, the Parliament has already started, but he has been unsupportive. Oh, okay. He has not been supportive yeah. to that. And he, yeah, like, they would, uh, they, there was a meeting in the President's uh, residence the day before, and they, they said, that even the President said that election is good to go for in democracy. I mean, yeah, the Prime Minister's uh, state was unconstitutional, but the President said that election is good. It means the Prime Minister's uh, um, action was uh, correct, but the Supreme Court went against that, right? Okay. But I think the Prime Minister is not willing to cooperate with the Parliament. He wants to go to the election because, you know, um, I think he is trying his best. I mean, he is not resigning even after the restoration of the Parliament, though he dissolved the Parliament. And he says that he will take confidence in the Parliament if uh, another party uh, takes the, the support back. Uh, but it looks like the Prime, Prime Minister's agenda is uh, to defunct the Parliament, not to, not to make, I mean, not to support the Parliament, to be able to give any government very sure so as a result, um, they had to be they had to go for the dissolution of the parliament again according to the constitution by trying uh, for some time to give another government and go for the election as he wanted. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Uh, we, we, I think we're going we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we're going around. Something from from because I was listening to. Tradition pencils actually thinking about Bangladesh. And, um, and there, there's a, an interesting kind of tactics that the government. Caitlin! Has. Caitlin! Your bag! Oh, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. A different kind of tactics that the government apparently uses, and it uses the judiciary to suppress political opposition. Yes. And when political opponents complain, they say we can't do anything about it because the judiciary is independent. <laughs> yes. Um, and then if you ask them, 
in private conversation, where did you learn this trick from? They said from Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore. So I'm just wondering whether yeah. it resonates at all with the uh, Nepali experience at all. Not. not that I've heard, because I yeah, not not that I've heard. That that sounds a little bit more sophisticated, to be honest. But if you're yeah, because it's got the that kind of quite sophisticated Singaporean way of being authoritarian, like within it. Um, yeah, look, it's it's Bangladesh is a really interesting case. I don't know a huge amount about it, but a really great article has just been published okay. in Democratization on exactly this, okay. on about the use of the oh, judiciary, um, as the use of judiciary and civil society yeah. in democratic backsliding there and about this really cunning way of suppressing opposition groups by using the yes. courts to do it and then Correct. saying, oh, but separation yeah, of powers. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a really good point. And if you're interested, there's, there's some really great stuff on it okay. um, that's just Thank come you. out like, oh, like a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. David? Uh, Renee, did you say that the judiciary challenges political decisions itself? The Supreme Court um, can challenge decisions made about particular pieces of legislation, particularly in the human rights space. So they have been challenging legislation that allows for things like amnesties mm -hmm. for serious human rights crimes or pieces of legislation that are in contravention of the Constitution, but also breach Nepal's obligations under international law. So they can directly challenge without having somebody bring a case to them, as is the case with the American Supreme Court, where somebody else brings the case. Because if, it, if, it, if, if they can directly challenge, this seems to me to, in a sense, muddy the water of separation of powers that the Supreme Court is independent of the government. Is that correct? It's slightly more complicated than that. It's not that they can directly do it. It's yeah. that the court makes it clear to a number of human rights-oriented oh, um, okay. lawyers who, who have <laughs> rights of audience at the Supreme Court, they say, if you bring a case along these lines to us, then we will hear it. So quite a few of the people that I spend a lot of time talking to bring cases to the Supreme Court all the time. This is what they do. And they find cases because the Supreme Court wants to test a particular issue or wants to rule on a particular issue. So there's a group of activist lawyers that have this relationship with the court and they then bring the case to the court. The court makes the ruling against the government. So we've got this kind of cosy relationship with lawyer activists as well. There's a whole article to be written about that. But it would be quite work, damaging right? <laughs> to those lawyer activists who are really trying to do something about the human rights situation. So I've you know, been talking to them for many, many years about this, and I always think, oh, this is so interesting and so great, but not sure about how you could do it in a way that doesn't ruin all the work that they're doing, because they, you know, they're the ones that have tried to get a proper process for dealing with disappearances. They've tried to criminalise torture. They've tried to remove the 35-day statute of limitations on rape, which means that no conflict rape can ever be tried. Like the work that they're doing is really important, and so I always have that big ethical issue with dealing with that one. So it just, yeah, it becomes an interesting story and nothing more for now. <laughs> Andrea, there's no pressure on the last two. <laughs> <laughs>
Andrew? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I don't know much about Nepal, but seeing quite a few pictures with people rallying, what's the public opinion on all of this? And is there actually an opinion? Are they involved, or is it more just between the different powers and not much kind of the public having a say or having an interest in it? Yeah, so it's a like uh, when you're talking about the provisions and, and the constitution. Um, but I, I would not say like there are provisions in the constitution which are directly as per the suggestions of the people, but like there were different demonstrations and there were different, like I mean the conflict, civil conflict was there, Maoists struggled for some particular demands. They had a state of 40 demands. Um, some of them they forsake um, later and some of their demands were uh, like fulfilled in the constitution and there were like two kind of extremes. One was one democratic parties were there on the one side and on the other side, like the communist party of Nepal Maoist, they, they were supposed to be autocratic communist. So there was a kind of a kind of understanding between them. So they would always say that it is the demand of the people. Like you need to do this for people. People want that. But I would not, I, I would not say that people who are so widely and directly involved in the constitution making. As I told you earlier, like there were like so many thousands of suggestions sent through. It's a it's a process of constitution making. But there is comment. There is criticism about it that they did not even like uh, open the files, they did not read that very rigorously and they did not include because there, there are a lot of people who are against the key provisions of the constitution as, as well. For example, there are many people who like uh, monarchy uh, to, to take, I mean monarchy not to be abolished, they wanted, they did not like federalism and there was a lot of discussion about ethnic uh, nature of federal restructuring of the state which actually did not place after a lot of discussions, but one of the reasons for why constitution uh, making process was uh, too long. So, yeah, I mean, they were the people's representatives, political parties definitely represented the people, and many things like I, I, I think were represented, uh, but there was no direct and obvious uh, involvement of the people from the ground, and I don't think their voices were like very directly heard in there. That's the general. To talk about the specific thing about transitional justice and human rights, though, that is something that a lot of the public does have a view on um, because a lot of the public has been directly impacted by what happened in the conflict. So we have seen significant protests about political decisions around human rights, big um, protests about enforced disappearances and then you know people wanting to know what happened to their family members and feeling that um, the court processes or that you know government decisions were not um, actually helping that. So there have been significant and quite dangerous protests. Um, some of them have been while I've been in Kathmandu and I've been told by people do not go near them. Um, you know, there's always like quite a, a serious risk there. Um, there have been significant protests um, around amnesty provisions in legislation and around the time that the courts have been making rulings about amnesties because there's a very large sector of the population that is very, very against the idea of amnestying you know, powerful political leaders who we know 
allegedly have committed murder. I mean, you know, there are people that have been tried, you know, and, and convicted um, there. But so particularly around the issue of disappearances, there is actually you know, significant public sentiment. The other place that there's significant public sentiment is around the Truth and Reconciliation and the Commission of Inquiry on First Disappearances, which have virtually no, no public support anymore. They did in the beginning and now because they have failed to complete a single case. Yeah. Like they have not resolved one well, case of yeah. tens of thousands. Um, and so many people went to them with their stories, with the evidence and whatever, and they have been completely hamstrung that there is no political support. And that feeds into the, you know, what's going on in the courts and what's going on um, you know, more broadly with legislation around, around human rights. Why, why have they been so unsuccessful? Um, ill-equipped, so not nearly enough staff, virtually no money. The legislation that, um, that establishment, uh, established them um, was in breach of the... was <laughs> contradicted the whole point of having them. So the whole idea of investigating human rights crimes, but those human, right cri human rights crimes are not defined in law. Um, they are limited... Um, in the extent that you can investigate them and so on. Um, the government has gone to pretty significant lengths to hamstring those, um, you know, those institutions. And the big issue has been on amnesties. So the legislation included provisions to for amnesties and a way of really restricting any possibility that evidence provided would go to a court case. And the initial commissioners were very against this, so they fought against the government for quite a while, and then they've all their positions have all lapsed, and the government doesn't reappoint them, and no cases have been resolved, not one. Yeah. So there is a lot of politicisation in addition. Like uh, the the commissions remained without leadership for more than ten months one time, and later when the commissioners were appointed, like people knew that which commissioner belonged to which party instead of like I mean uh, this this belonged to communist quota and this commissioner chief commissioner belonged to Nepali Congress or something like that. So I mean uh, they uh, to, to decide on the issues of whether it is a matter of reconciliation or whether this kind of cases must be punished. I mean, they, they had to have uh, consensus. But the say commissioner belonging to the uh, Communist Party uh, of Maoist uh, would want total reconciliation without any punishment. So a lot of uh, politicization is there, and the political actors are using those commissioners and the commissions in their interest. So it's totally like it has been like defunct. Okay. Uh, we're almost at time. Uh, if anybody has any other extra questions, I don't want to exclude you. Uh, yeah, yeah just a probably a pretty simple one, but I'm thinking about the sort of long-term requirements of post-conflict reconstruction and just wondering if there's been any um, regional or international institutional support that's underpinned this process, or is that sort of viewed as um, intervention? There has, there was in the beginning, and then it all got withdrawn okay. um, because... Um, the Nepali government refused to abide by international standards um, in terms of justice, so in terms of um, ratifying international conventions and in terms of accountability for human rights crimes. Mm -hmm. um, and they persisted with having amnesties um, or trying to get amnesty legislation through, putting it in particular conventions, 
all the big international bodies that were helping with the process withdrew their support, starting with the UN. And so there's been little international involvement and influence since then over exactly this issue, um, which, to my mind, is a bit strange. Like, if you want to try and improve a situation, maybe stay the course. But they've withdrawn all of their support. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> Last one. Go on, <laughs> Go on Nadia. <laughs> well, I can actually ask Renee and Vikram any time, but I was just curious about um, the process you collect the data. I mean, I'm not sure whether this is actually something that people are open to talk to or are they actually reluctant and, I mean, it's a sensitive issue that some people might not want to talk about it. In Nepal, there is no problem about that. They can speak a lot about those things. Very, very open in Facebook, Twitter, anywhere. If you like to talk to them, they're open to talk about that. Yeah. Even the politician, I mean, those people who are... Uh, they, they would speak against each other. <laughs> like, it's for their interest, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so some of the data has been some, some interviews and things that I've done or some just things, but a lot of the data collection for this, Bikram did by going through every... Every Supreme Court document for 15 years that had anything to do with the human rights or transitional justice process and mapping all of the arguments that were put before the court and how things changed and, and what the government responses were. So a lot of this was just a huge amount of document work that Bikram did. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> but did you have that classic problem that you can have in some countries, and I find in India, that everybody will talk to you behind closed doors and be extremely frank, but you can't quote them? <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Renee Bikram, to, for this yeah. paper. Uh, so next week's seminar, we're going to we're looking at Indonesia. Michelle Ford, who's the who's a professor of Southeast Asian Affairs from Sydney and the head of the Southeast Asia Centre down at Sydney University, is is coming up uh, to to Brisbane to talk on labour and politics in Indonesia. So that's our topic for next week. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.